So this morning we are going to we are continue um, our series on hope. This morning it's an unexpected or, or an unusual or upside down hope that we have in the gospel and in Christ. Um, I try to find the right words for it. There are just too many. Um, and so we're going to look at why this hope or why the hope that we have in Christ is so different to any other hope that there is or, or that there's around for us to grab hold of. The two big questions is that I, after the preach that I ask myself is, God, why would you save me? <laughs> have you ever asked that question? Like, God, why would you bother to save me? Like, what is it about me that you would save? And if you're a Christ follower this morning, maybe you could, you've asked this question. God, why would you use me? <laughs> what is there about me that you would choose to use me for your kingdom and for your gospel? Um, and in a strange way, this morning's sermon is a, almost like a, a biblical reason for our church's name, everyday people, ordinary people. And we're going to look at just how unexpected the grace of God is, how unexpected the people are that God chooses to save, and the people are that God chooses to use. And hopefully all of us in the room this morning will walk out here again grateful for the grace of God as, um, through worship we've had. But we'll walk out of here again, God, thank you that you've saved me. Thank you that you can use me, all of us. Um, and so if you would turn to 1 Corinthians in your Bibles, um, 1 verse 20, 26 to 31. This is Paul speaking about the grace of God and the gospel of our lives. Um, can I just, laptops and um, phones are great. Bibles are better. Um, I want us to get into a culture as a church to bring your Bibles to church. I get that it's on your phone, it's cool, but there's something about opening paper and reading your Bible together in church, and so uh, I'd hate for us one day to never ever have the, the rustling of paper Bibles in a church building when, we, when we're reading Scripture together. It's great having it there. If you don't have a Bible, this is for you, um, but for the rest of us, we're going to turn into our own personal Bibles. Let's go. 1 Corinthians 26. This is Paul speaking about our calling. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to world standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God. Have you noticed in this series how often the words but God comes through? I don't know if you've followed our series online or even in church. Almost every Sunday or every second Sunday there's this phrase, but God, like the intervention of God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, things, to, 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 bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him who are in Christ Jesus, who, come, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let no one boast before God in his own strength. When we boast, we boast in Christ. When I boast about being a Christ follower, I boast in Christ. I don't boast in honor. I want to read the message version to you. It's on the board as well. This is actually just a, it's a paraphrasing of the same text. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. So he's speaking about called into the new kingdom, into, as, as a Christ follower. I sometimes forget, I sometimes think we forget that as Christ followers, we, we didn't just add religion to our lives as a, as a hobby or as a tradition. 
We forget sometimes that what happened at our salvation is that God took us from one kingdom and literally transplanted us into a new kingdom. It's like a South African becoming an Aussie. It's a dreadful thing. You have to speak like an Aussie, sound like an Aussie, support the Aussies, etc., etc. That's what happened at salvation. He called us into this new life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. Imagine the church. Imagine honor coming. Hi, everyday people. I want to encourage you in what God has called you to. As I look at you, I don't see the brightest and best amongst us. Can you imagine? You're already laughing. Okay? Oh, no, slow down. This is Paul speaking to the church. Not the many influential, not many of the high society families amongst us. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose the nobodies in this world to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? I love how Eugene Peterson puts that. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with the a, with a blowing of his own horn before God. Everything that we have, everything, right thinking and right living, a clean slate, a fresh start, comes from God by the way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow your horn, blow a trumpet for God. Same passage. Let's, let's pray and just thank God for it. God, thank you for your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would quicken it to our hearts, that you would make this word alive to us, that we would put aside things that's not of you, um, and that we, we would see the, the truth of your word, and it would free us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. What a wonderful hope. <laughs> not many churches have Paul's in their lives saying, hey, as I look at you, I don't see the brightest guys here. I don't see people from noble families. You're not really influential. You're actually nobodies. Hi, welcome to our church. Can you imagine welcoming modern-day people to a church like that? I don't think we'll be super full every week because we're going to go down the road where it's going to say, you are special. You are unique. You are the gift to us. You're a gift to God. Hey, we can see that you are influential. You're going you're to change the world. Isn't that what we all kind of crave to hear? Paul doesn't bank on that. Paul puts all his eggs in Jesus' basket and what he's done for us and almost annihilates everything else that we would put our confidence in. I'm sharp, I'm bright, I'm influential, I come from a good family, I'm from the right background, I'm from the right side of the river, there used to be, right side of the train track in many cities in South Africa. And Paul does away with all that. What an inclusive hope. But this hope has a, a bit of a sting in its tail. Because just as we look at this, we also realize that the, the strong, the clever, the, the influential, the, the from wealthy and influ influential families, we've discovered in life struggle more to understand and grasp the gospel than the weak and the poor, the foolish, the nobodies. If you look at history, the nobodies in this world gets, get the gospel quicker than the somebodies. <laughs> Isn't it true? Have you noticed that? And how often God has to bring the, the somebodies down to the level of a nobody for them to get the gospel and understand the gospel. This is an unusual kingdom. The one thing that COVID's done is it's blurred the lines between what's good and what's bad and what's, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, what's godly, what's not godly. And, and I think sometimes as Christians, we've got into patterns and lifestyles where we go, is this okay? Is this honoring God? Is, is God worthy of this action or my behavior? But this kingdom that we call to is called 
and we're called to is quite radically different to this world than we live in. Yes, we live in East London, but we're not of East London, if it makes sense. We're in this world, but we're not of. We've been transferred, transplanted, us nobodies, into a kingdom. We live in days when Christians, um, we're being a Christian, often being seen as a thing of tradition, what I grew up in, what I was born into, I was forced to go to church, etc., etc. Some of you might still be in church today and think that Christianity is just a traditional thing. I'm doing it because mom and dad's dragged me here, or my mom and dad dragged me, and I just don't know what else to do on a Sunday morning. We just do it. It's what we do. We go to church. But nothing could be further from the truth. Being a Christian has through history meant to be radical and disruptive. Being a Christian was never ever meant, ever through history, to just be going with the flow of the world. It was actually meant to be radical, and it was meant to disrupt certain things in society. Actually be a prophetic voice against some of the things that society would speak. Being a Christian, and Paul and some of the authors would say, if you became a disciple or a follower of Christ, you signed up for lots of laughing, but also lots of trouble. You had incredible joy, but you also were always in trouble. Why? Not because you were trying to be obnoxious or anti-government and anti-state and anti-everything. No, because you stood for truth. And standing for truth as a Christian in this world is going to become harder. It's becoming harder already in our society, in our world, in our country, in this world. And then I'd like to take you to another list. So here's Nebuchadnezzar, a, a pagan king who's just overtaken Israel and Israel is in bondage and in exile in his country, in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar wants to build his next army of great people. And listen to his list in, one, in Daniel 1, verse 3 to 5. The king told Ashpenaz, head of the palace staff, listen to this list, to go get some of the Israels from royal families and nobility, young men who were healthy and handsome, intelligent and well-educated, good prospects for leadership, intelligent and well-educated, good prospects for leadership positions in the government, perfect specimens, and indoctrinate them in the Babylonian language and the law of magic and fortune-telling. The king then ordered that they be served from the same menu as the royal Treat them like us, the best food, the finest wine. After three years of training, they would become they would be given positions of authority in the king's court. The pagan list of what qualifies you, the secular list, the, the world's list, where do you come from, your nobility? Are you from a royal family? Tell us about, we've got an interesting dynamic in KwaZulu-Natal at the moment around the royal family and deciding who is the prince, who will be the, who's succeeding. It's, it sounds to me that the, the queen decides who the successor is. And I saw a bit of a news clip where the police had to jump in and the, the, the successor was like rushed off in a car because they feared for his life already. He wasn't even ordained as the new king of KZN or the Zulu nation yet. But the world looks at, where do you come from? Tell us about your nobility. What are, who are you? Are you young and, and full of energy? Are you healthy? Are you handsome? Are you good looking? Are you clever? Are you bright? Do you get this? Are you well-educated? Do you have potential? Let's spend time with all those with potential. The guys, it doesn't show potential. Let's, go to the, let's just move on to the next crowd. Let's not waste our time with those without potential. It's not difficult to see how radical these two kingdoms is. It's amazing how this pagan king's list 
compares to Paul's list. It's almost like Paul knew about this list to the church and said, let me tell you about what God looks at. And let me tell you who God uses in His kingdom. Radical contradictions. Sadly, even in our church and in secular, we, we use some of the same measurements. They're already not yet. Often, even in church leadership, even in church, we could do the same things. Who looks like the influential? Let's spend time there. Oh, that's, they, are, they are a very, very successful family. Or, hey, that looks bright. He gets it. <laughs> or, hey, hey, that guy looks like he's got potential. But let's look at Jesus' kingdom that he initiates. There's three little things about Jesus' kingdom I want to share with you this morning. Firstly, he initiates it not by force and by strength. <laughs> look at his life. Look at Jesus' life. But by weakness and dying on a cross. How does Jesus establish his kingdom? By ruling and forcefully coming and, and slaying all the Romans. And, and he could have, his angels could have done that. But he comes in weakness and he comes to a cross. And because Jesus' kingdom was initiated like that, it caused you and I to live like that. In weakness and in sacrifice. So how does he initiate? He initiates a kingdom that's weak for the weak and the lowly. Unlike other religions, we do not achieve salvation by summoning our own strengths and pulling ourselves up by our own socks. I still don't know what that means. Uh, it's an old saying, but what does it mean to pull yourself up by your socks? I, I honestly don't know how to even... Have you tried to pull yourself up by your socks? I think gravity kind of works against you. I can remember as a lighty getting a clip behind my ear, if my socks were on my shoes and my mom and my dad said, pull up your socks, I get that just because it looks neat. But the world says, you can do this. Try harder. Work harder. Religion says that. Secondly, we follow Jesus not by taking power and seeking position, but we follow Jesus by serving and sacrificing and forgiving. This is for another preach, but Timothy Keller just wrote, I don't know how many thousand word article about the greatest need in the church at the moment is forgiveness. He says society and the church is forgetting what it's like and what it costs to forgive. We're becoming an unforgiving people. Secularly, if you forgive, if you're an unbeliever and you forgive, they view you as weak, as not loving yourself, not valuing yourself. As the church, have we allowed some of that to, to drip into us? Why should I forgive again? Why, why again? <laughs> hey, honor does the same thing over and over. Surely, guys, just be married with... Hey, 26 years this where, Thursday? So, Mother's Day and 26 years. So, Claire knows. If you want to know about forgiveness, will you chat to Claire and she can help you? Thirdly, we see the truth or we see the world through different eyes. We don't overvalue intelligence, strength, wealth, all those things. No. We see folk in the margins. We see the nobodies. We are faithful the nobodies. We, only, we don't just walk around giving our attention to the somebodies. Let's look at some of the men that God chose through Scripture, just to encourage you. Now, in the Old Testament, just before I go to the men, we're going to speak about men and women that God chose through Scripture. It's going to be encouraging. There's two big laws in Genesis in the Old Testament that every culture lived by, secular or Israel and others. 
The first law is the law of the firstborn. The firstborn of every family, male, sorry, son, male, firstborn, gets everything. He is the special one. He receives everything, gets everything. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Firstborn, you get the car, you get the house, and you decide what your younger brothers and siblings would get after that. First law in society. Second law, big law in society, that a woman's value was determined by, number one, how good-looking she was. Is she pretty? Is she beautiful? And the second value that determined the woman's value was, can she have children? Old Testament law. So that's how they determined, as a woman, where your pecking order in society. How pretty were you? How many kids can you have? That's a few thousand years ago. It's not today. Although I would bat and I would argue that 10,000 years after Genesis plus, some of that still lingers in society. Not just lingers, it's, it's there. I've, not because I've got a daughter and a wife, but if you read Scripture and you look at society, I realize just how, what the need is for us as men to honor and show godly love and respect to women. Just look at society. We're in, we're in desperate need of that, aren't we? But those are the two laws that we, that we find ourselves in here. So let's look at the men first. The, the, remember what I said about firstborn. He is everything. He gets everything. Everything belongs to him. He's the favorite. He, he gets away with everything he needs to get away with. So let's look at who God uses in the, in, in the Old Testament just quickly. So God blesses and who he uses. First of all, he blesses Abel over Cain. Remember the, in, 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 in Eden or what happened just after, after Eden, Abel and Cain? Who, who murdered who? Cain. Abel, why? Because he was jealous that God was blessing Abel, his younger brother, with, with his sacrifices. Then we move to Isaac and over Ishmael. Remember Sarah being, becoming, or Abram becoming impatient and having Ishmael with Hagar, the slave woman, and then eventually Isaac is born later, the second son to Abraham. Who is the one that God builds Israel and becomes the, 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 the sacrifice on the mountain? Who is the one that, that Israel becomes the father of the nations? Isaac, not the firstborn. We look at Jacob and Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau's story? The older brother, the ragabugger, the, the hunter that, 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 is the, that is in charge, that runs his dad's estate and his farm and his, all, his, all his, his sheep, etc. And what happens is younger brother sneaks in and takes, steals his inheritance, his older brother's inheritance at his father's deathbed. And then what's worse is that God blesses Jacob, the younger brother that just stole. It doesn't make sense. If we, if we were in an ethic moral class at university, and you said, who should God bless? We would all put our hands up and say, Esau, he was robbed. He was the oldest brother. What is God doing blessing Jacob, the younger brother? And he's a thief. And he's a coward because he ends up running away. Yet God blesses this guy. We would not choose Jacob in this fight. None of us would. It's like asking a South African, who do you want to pick in a fight between England and Australia? We don't want to pick either. They must both lose. So, then we look at Joseph and Reuben. Joseph, the youngest, who was sold as a slave by his older brothers, left for death, left in a pit. Father's favorite, Lot Lamiki. Sorry, what is Lot Lamiki in Corsa? Is there a word for Lot Lamiki? 
The, the, the baby that's like 10 years younger than all the other kids. Is there course a word for that? What's that, Hazel? Anyway, there must be a word, sorry, but Afrikaans, they call it like a late lamb or, I don't know, last born, whatever. The baby in the family. And God chooses the guy left for dead, daddy's favorite blue-eyed child, despised by his older brothers. God chooses, I say, I'll bless him. I'll use Joseph, thank you. Who would we have picked? Reuben, the faithful older brother. David over his older brothers. Remember when David was anointed and Samuel went and they looked at all the brothers and they go and they looked at all the brothers and they said, Who's not here? Oh, the younger brother is in the he's amongst the sheep out there guarding the sheep. He's not worth being here. Who does God put his hand on? David, the nobody. Can you see how God like like I said, if we're if we were to ask you for a vote, most of us would vote for the other. God is different to this. Look at the woman that God uses through Scripture. We see that God using older, less attractive Sarah over younger Hagar. The plain Leah. Remember the story of Leah and Rachel? Like Scripture is not very complimentary of Leah. Or is it Leah? Leah. You can say Leah or Leah. But Rachel's other sister that wasn't quite as attractive, that actually wasn't pleasant to look at in some scriptures. And God says, no, you, she'll be the mother of your children. And God blesses her. Raham, Tamar, Badbeth, Sheba, we have these ladies. Tamar that God uses. It's even in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar. Who was she? Do you know who Tamar was? Tamar was a, a woman who tricked her father-in-law into having sex with her. To have his children. She's, her name makes it to the genealogy of Jesus. God uses that woman in his kingdom to establish his kingdom. Rahab. You know who Rahab in the scripture was? She was a prostitute that God used to save his prophets. God, and she is in the genealogy of Jesus. She's part of the gospel story that you and I believe. Ruth. Do you know who Ruth was? A pagan, despised nation, worshipping foreign gods. God works it into the gospel story, into the genealogy of Jesus. Bathsheba, a wife of another man, forced into an adulterous affair with David and loses her husband. And God uses her in the history of the gospel in his story. Yet every one of these women is included in Matthew in the genealogy. You and I wouldn't pick any of them. The nicest person in this room wouldn't pick any of them. Because we, whether we like it or not, we look at the stuff that the, the world sees. We don't always look with the eyes that God uses to look upon our lives. If God had to use the eyes that you and the world uses, this room would be empty today. This room would be empty if God had to use the world's standards on picking us for him to be part of his family, his tribe. Aren't you glad that prostitutes, conniving, adulterous, pagan, cowards, cheats, cowards, <laughs> make it into this family? Aren't you glad that when you are like that, 
that that song that said, you are welcome, can I say to you, on your worst day, when you are acting like the worst Christian, and you're acting unchristian and unchristlike, and you're saying things and doing things behind people's backs that no one sees but God, that your Father still welcomes you, not because of your actions, but because of what His Son's done, and because His Son's in heaven praying for you, defending, and saying, hey, I, I know he, she's not perfect. I don't, Dad, I know they're not, but they're mine. Have kids. Have, just have kids. They're not perfect, but they're mine. You are a child. If you, yeah, you're a child. You're not perfect, but you belong. You have a parent that holds on to you. We're part of a storyline in the gospel that, that no one wants to be in. See, this is our storyline. We would love a storyline of our lives that goes from strength to strength, from glory to glory, from one success to a bigger success, from a nice house to a bigger house to a bigger house or to a second beach house. We would like to go from this car to this car to a better car, from this job to a better. Our life story, the storyline that we love, is one that continues to go better and better and better, bigger, 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 more and more success. But very often life doesn't plan that way. It doesn't look like it. And certainly the gospel storyline is completely the opposite. Here you have someone in eternity in heaven in Jesus, leaving all that comfort, rain, and he steps into our muck. And from being king and rule and God becomes a servant that lays down his life that dies on a cross amongst thieves, sacrificing and loving. That is not the success storyline that this world sells to you and to I. If we're not doing this, if we're not going forward, we're going backwards. Isn't that the saying? If you're not moving forward, you're going backwards. Jesus, in almost everything he did, in the eyes of this world, went backwards. Went backwards for you and me. Don't tell me earth can compare to eternity in heaven. Don't tell me that a, the Holy of Holies, where he's amongst his Father, can compare to the mush and sin and rubbish of this world that our Savior stepped into. He stepped backwards for you and for me. Not every backward step in your life is a catastrophe. Very often God uses the backward steps in your life to move you forward in Him and in His kingdom. Most often He uses those things that we feel are taking us backwards for us to propel us forward because we, we end up having more faith in Him than the things we placed our faith in. doesn't make sense. When we read Scripture, we see one, another story. We see a life through death, triumph through weakness. Joseph saved e Egypt and his family in the Old Testament after being left for dead. When they sold him as a slave to their family, to Joseph's family, he died. He's dead. He doesn't belong but he saves Egypt in his death. Ruth, a foreign pagan, follows her mom and lays down her life for her mom and ends up redeeming a nation, saving a nation, God's nation. This pagan, pagan God-worshipping comes to Christ, places a faith in God, and saves God's very nation. Hebrews 11, verse 32 to 35 says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David, of Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, 
through faith, not their status, not their cleverness, not their perfection, not how well they walked before God. No, their faith in God saved them or enabled this. Enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the sword of the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. The writer of Hebrews is referring to, in the early church, people being martyred and tortured for the gospel. And they would rather be tortured and martyred than lose their new life and their resurrected life in God. It doesn't make sense. I'm going backwards. I'm losing everything. Yes, but you're moving forward in God. Mark shared his testimony saying, five years ago, I would not have handled this in this way. I'd have returned to booze. I'd have gone back to smoking. Not sure what marriage would look like back then. But now, but now, by the grace of God, I can stand and God has turned this thing upside down. I can promise you, Mark will look back. Sorry, Mark, speaking of you as if you're not in the room. I can promise you, five years from now, Mark will look back at this season where things were taken from him, where he was moving backwards, and he will say, God moved me forward. God was growing me, and God placed capacity in me to trust him. Did he enjoy the backward steps? Not a chance. Nothing in our flesh is going to enjoy stepping back. But something in our spirit says, God, you can use this. You can change this. And I'm not talking, please, I'm not talking about a triumphalist kind of prosperity. God's going to take everything bad and make it good. And I'm going to, he's going to take my car, but one day he's going to give me a Mercedes. I'm not talking about that. God might, but we don't need mercs to love Jesus and to feel secure and to move forward in him. Sometimes it's losing that merc to move forward in Christ. That's how radical this kingdom is. Gideon, that God used. I'm just giving you some background. Least in his father's family, and his family least in their tribe. So not only was he the worst runt in his dad's family, his dad's family was the, the worst family in the tribe. Imagine a Christmas party, and there's the one family that you don't want to invite. His dad was part of that family. And imagine having a family gathering, and there's one child you don't want Gideon was that child, <laughs> yet God chose to use and save and use Gideon. Jephthah, outcast, outcast, a son of a prostitute, God used. Women like the power or the poor widow in Zarephah. And we land with us the gospel that we don't want to hear. And when I say people don't want to hear, I'm talking about unregenerated people. If you're not a believer, you don't want to hear about going backwards. If you're not a believer, you, you place all your faith in, am I sharp? Am I worth something? Do I have potential? Where do I come from? As Christ follows, we, like I said, we place all our eggs in Christ's basket. We say, no, you're good enough for me. I don't care where I come from. I don't care how sharp I am. Listen to how James puts it. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised 
to those who love him. Has God not chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Jesus speaks about a rich man and an eye of a needle. It is easier from a humanistic, from a human being's side to follow Jesus when you find yourself poor, weak, a nobody. It is incredibly hard. I have the most incredible admiration for, for, for the somebodies that come to faith. It's easy to, to, to say yes to Jesus when I'm a nobody. It's hard to say yes to Jesus when I already think I'm a somebody. And I have the most incredible admiration for the somebodies that can take their eyes off their backgrounds, off their skill sets or their gifts, off their wealth and go, I'm going to follow Jesus. I still choose to place my faith in Jesus. Religion appeals to the confident and to the strong. If you're a somebody, religion appeals to you. Why do you think that is? Because you're confident that you can actually follow through on all the things that religion demands from you. When you're a somebody, when you're strong and you, you, you think you're clever and you've got it all together and you're special, you say, bring on religion. I'll tick all the boxes. Watch me. Come on, Arno. Give me more boxes to tick because I, I'm confident in myself. I will tick those boxes. Because we have a confidence in our own being and who we are. But the gospel, is it me? Sorry. But the gospel, it's not my voice, I promise you. But the gospel appeals to the weak. Is it my shirt? It doesn't normally. <laughs> my heart's beating. Sorry, I think it was my beard. It was. Um, no. <laughs> Sia, can you speak to my wife about the gospel appeals to the weak, the lowly, the poor, the foolish. You and I are sinners. You have done many things wrong. You and I have done many things wrong. Even the good things that you and I do as human beings are done out of self-interest. Have you ever thought of that? Some of the good things and good intentions, you do it because either you want people to think better of you or you want yourself to think better of yourself. That's why Paul says even our best deeds are like filthy rags because there's a bit of self-interest in even the best things we do. All our striving and your and my striving efforts, etc., are wasted. Everything you and I have is a gift from God. Can God save me only because he chooses to? And he shows grace to me. Can God use me? Only because he chooses me. My background, my gifting, my skill set. It's got nothing to do with it. What does this mean for you and I? And I'll wrap with this and then we're going we're gonna to break prayer together. It, stops at you and I, it means that you and I can stop pretending as Christ follows. We can put our pretense aside. We can, we, we can stop hiding our weaknesses from one another. We can destroy the culture of I'm always winning. I'm always strong. I know everything. I understand everything. I get it. No, we can, but we can stop pretending to know stuff we don't. 
We can, it frees us to say, I don't know, I don't understand, or I can't, or I'm battling. I am weak, would you help me? Only the gospel will free you to do that and to be like that. Religion will keep you pretending that you're ticking all the boxes, that everything's going well. I'm ner- normally quite nervous of people that are always, that know everything, nothing's ever wrong, and they don't need faith. They, their faith is perfect. They never fear, they never doubt God, they never question God. I'm going, I don't know a human being on this planet that lives like that. So there has to be an element of pretense there. Religion causes that, not the gospel. The gospel allows us to be who we are. We can stop sharing only our best lives everywhere. We can share when we're not doing well. We can invite our friends and one another into our moments that we're struggling. We can stop measuring and comparing ourselves because of the gospel. Unless you want to compare whether you're a prostitute or whether you're a thief or whether you... <laughs> by all means, go compare how badly and how, you un- how undeserving you are of the gospel. By all means, if that's you, go for it. <laughs> if you're going to share and compare, compare that. <laughs> but let's not boast in our own strength and, oh, so-and-so is like that. And No, 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 we don't compare. Carl Barth, a, a, a theologian in the Reformation days, said this, when we share only our victories, we become competitors. Competitors. When we share our weaknesses, we become brothers. We were in advance over the last week with church leaders from about 70, 80 different churches in South Africa. And this was shared there. And they were talking about the danger in our modern-day churches, the dangerous culture in modern-day churches where we're all we're sharing is our wins and how well we're doing. And how even in the church we're becoming gun-shy, invulnerably, honestly, walking before one another going, I'm battling, I'm struggling, I'm weak. Even in the midst of a pandemic, we still find ourselves wanting to hide the things that we struggled through the things we battle through, the things we find ourselves weak in. And the dangerous thing is not the culture that that creates in the church is we start acting like religious people, pretending that we're all good and comparing and competing instead of becoming brothers and sisters to one another. That's the danger of this, is that we don't become brothers and sisters, we become competitors, religious guys. Let's see if I can jump higher than you. Let's see if I can outrun you. No, no, no. Let's see if I can outlove you. Can I outforgive you? Can I outsacrifice for you? Can I outgive you? Those are the things the kingdom charges us with and goes, that's, if you want to compare and compete, why don't you compete on those things? See, you can forgive the most. <laughs> see, you can, can sacrifice the most. See, you could open the arms to the nobodies the most. Can you see how different the gospel and how different the people that the gospel creates is to the people the world creates? Sorry, Emmanuel. I'm done. We can stop striving and chasing after something. All religions, the final words in every, from Buddha to Hindu to Muslim to other religion, says try harder, try harder, do more. Jesus' final words is, It is finished. It is done. You do not strive your way into the gospel, into Christianity, into Christ. He's done it all for you. You and I are like we prayed earlier. We are the recipients. Our hands are like this. 
empty with nothing other than our, our broken sinfulness, and we receive the grace of God into our lives. We can become weak and weary. Jesus invites the weak and weary into his presence. Not the strong and the, I've got it together. All those who are weak and tired and, 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 and exhausted, come to me. That's the invitation of the gospel. Let's break bread together. Um, I think we'll do it without music, if it's okay. Cool. So if you're new to us, there are two levels to our communion. There is a wafer at the top. You, you need a bit of a nail to open it. Or ask a friend if they've sanitized their hands. Sorry. Oh, please, if you need to go fetch, please fetch one of these. My, my bad. Um, it's not just my voice that's gone, it's my ears. <laughs> Thank you, Sia. Cheers, ladies. Privileged, day. Eh? There's another lady there. Sia. Mother's Day. Sorry. Hayes, we bless your mom for you. Anybody else still need a wafer and a cup? Why don't we do something completely contrasting to this world this morning? Before we take this, I'm not sure who said it, but because Jesus was perfectly strong and, and sinless, I can come with my sin. I can come with my weakness. I can come with my, because he was perfect, I can come with my brokenness. Because Jesus was perfect, it takes the pressure off me to be perfect and to pretend like I am and act like I am. I said this morning that when we prayed, there's, there are two, two individuals in the room I'm, I'm trusting for this morning. The first individual is the one that's, that religion appeals to. And be careful before, don't be too quick to say you're not that person. <laughs> don't be too quick to say I'm not the religious guy or no. Don't be too quick to say I don't have religion. If there's striving, if there's any iota in your life that feels, I can do this, I can, I, I can do this Christian thing, I can tick the boxes, I want us to lay that down this morning and say, today I want to lay religion down. And then the other person is, those who think, why would God choose to save me? Why would God choose to use me? Honor, do you know where I'm from? <laughs> do you know my background, Honor? Honor, do you know what I got up to yesterday? Do you know what I got up to last night? Honor, do you understand how I struggle to forgive? <laughs> Honor, do you understand how selfish I am? Honor, do you understand how ugly I can be? Honor, do you, you asking me to accept the fact that Christ would welcome me into his family? And I'm going, yes. <laughs> I'm saying you're welcome because of what Christ has done on the cross. Welcome to a bunch of imperfect people who are not smashing it spiritually and faithfully every single day of their lives. 
Welcome to the nobodies, to everyday people. Let's thank Jesus. So if you need to this morning, as you take the cup and the bread, won't you quietly just where you are just, maybe you need to repent of religion, saying, God, actually I'm trying to achieve your favor by doing all the right things. I'm not relying on you, Jesus, enough. I'm pretending I'm playing a game here. Or maybe you this morning are just going, Jesus, thank you that you are enough for me. Thank you that you are and will always be enough for me. Let me pray for us and then we're going to eat and drink together. Jesus, thank you that you, you went backwards. The storyline of the gospel is you leaving heaven for us, becoming a servant, laying down your life on the cross, forgiving us, deliberately sinning, willfully disobeying you. You still chose to lay down your life on the cross for us. We want to just say thank you. Free us from pretense. Free us from religion. Allow us to be honest with one another. Turn us as a church into brothers and sisters, not into religious competitors. We pray in Jesus' name.